0: Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. My name is Manisa and I'm a graduate student of urban planning at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. This week, we are joined by Jacqueline Klopp, or Jackie, the co-director and research scholar at Columbia University's Center for Sustainable Urban Development at the Earth Institute. I'm speaking with Jacqueline after her appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on 11th February, where she discussed how open data and digital commons are critical for investments in inclusive and sustainable urban infrastructure, and consequently, public health, land use, emissions, and livability in African cities. So thank you so much for the opportunity, Jackie. We are really excited to have you here.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So today, you discussed about the digital commons in Nairobi and the work that you've been doing with various ecosystem actors there. This is fascinating for me personally, because unlike in the US, where all major cities have their own data portals, most cities in developing nations of Africa, Asia, Latin America, including my own, uh, have high degrees of informality and a paucity of structured or accessible information that can be used to make data-backed decisions. But the Digital Matatu Project leverages these as strengths rather than seeing them as problems to be addressed. So could you share a little more about the project for our listeners and how you went about implementing the project?
1: The idea behind the Digital Matatus project was to show that we can leverage basic technologies like GPS-enabled cell phones in order to gather useful, critical data on what I call popular transport systems, like what you mentioned. In this case, little minibuses called matatus that form the core of public transport in Nairobi and many other cities globally. So as you mentioned, many cities across the globe in Africa and Asia, parts of Latin America, do not have good data for planning on these popular transport systems that dominate. So the digital matatus project went about to prove that you could get data on these systems and this data could be very useful for planning so that we really shouldn't be ignoring these systems. We need to understand them. We have the tools to do it and we need to work collaboratively to really improve them and make them part of our planning, which is critical for, for equity and for having a successful multimodal public transport system, which is at the core of really improving livability in these these cities. So it
0: sounds like much of the process of implementation seems to be quite participatory in nature, where you used the tools that already existed instead of ignoring them and creating parallel systems. So more broadly, um, how do you think the process of data gathering and creation or data co-creation, as I would like to say, in developing countries might evolve over time. So who are the major stakeholders that would be involved in building these digital
1: commons? Excellent question. As you mentioned before, cities don't have this data. They often don't have even a data portal where they put even the data they have on their buses or rail systems. They Often don't have the strong capacities to leverage new technologies, including things like GIS, to be able to help them with their planning. And this really needs to be a focus of, of improvement because it's hard to see how they're going to be able to really improve their public transport systems without this kind of capacity. And Yet in many of these cities, you have a lot of civil society actors and also private actors that are actively using all the new tools at our disposal to create data. Uh, And even some of the operators themselves of some of these popular transport systems are upgrading and using data in order to let passengers know where their vehicles are. I think rickshaws in in India (laughs) is a good example There's just a lot of innovation that's happening and it's really important for cities to see themselves as ecosystem builders and also uh, to recognize that they have to also advocate for a public good, which is a digital commons, because otherwise, you can also get a lot of private actors, including big tech companies from Silicon Valley that are present in almost all our cities, you know, gathering data, and none of that data is useful uh, for for public planning. It might help Uber, or it might help one of the, you know, tech companies, or the transport um, companies they run, but it's not helping broader planning in the public interest. So I think there's a need to really work with cities on understanding the importance of building this capacity of using digital Commons for their purposes and using them also to facilitate ecosystem development of innovation to improve their systems. And also related to that also digital rights so people also understand that their data, which they're often sharing without knowing about it, Um, through the new apps and, and, you know, is protected and that they have some control as citizens over that. So I think that there's a lot of work for us, us to do in that regard.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And related to the topic of capacity building that you mentioned, Many such projects that are looking to build data and create these ecosystems in cities are typically funded by multilateral organizations or supported by international academic institutes, like in the case of Digital Matatu, it was in collaboration with the research lab at MIT, right? What do you see the role of the international community to be here and how might ownership and accountability work in such settings?
1: Thank you so much for that question, because... I think that a lot of the multilateral organizations, international actors who are working in these cities are not always really supporting the building of digital commons. So for example, they will support different projects. Data might be gathered. There's no sharing. There's no standardization. There's no capacity building to help the cities do that work themselves as opposed to having a consultant. And so it's a kind of dependency that gets perpetuated that is unacceptable. And so my colleagues and I talk about data sovereignty, that we actually think that these cities and these communities and these cities need to have access and they need to be co-creators and they also need to have rights over this data which is so essential for their public planning conversations of what they wanna do in their cities. So I do want to give a shout out to my colleagues at the French Development Agency that have been highly supportive of pushing, even within their own projects, this idea of digital data commons, which is part of their own policy in France as a digital republic to really, you know, assert public control over critical data. And so they have been s- slowly starting to streamline that. And they have supported our digital transport for Africa work with the World Resource Institute to help cities um, on these data sovereignty and data capacity issues.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point that you made about the difference between specific projects and just building digital commons more broadly such that it can be used across a wide range of urban planning projects. Another question that I had was, so when we look at the emerging idea of smart cities and more generally establishing indicators to measure progress on sustainable development goals, I read one of your papers that talks about the inability of quantitative indicators to reflect urban complexity, since there are multiple sociocultural, cultural economic, and political elements interacting with the built environment but there's also a significant role of data frameworks and quantitative indicators to to sort of build shared goals and measure progress along the way. So how do you deal with this duality as an urban academic as well as practitioner?
1: I think one of the best ways to deal with it is through a lens of democratizing planning. So you know, there can be these metrics that get developed outside of uh, communities and neighborhoods and citizens, residents, and outside of what matters to them. And we see this over and over again in the transport infrastructure. If you were concerned about access to services or concerned about safety or concerned about children, you know, a high-speed highway through a dense neighborhood would not be your choice if if those were your metrics. If you cared about environmental issues and your air, again, the high-speed highway would not be your choice. And one of the things you're seeing is sort of the way that those metrics are developed is often very opaque. And the ability to say we don't have data also means that you can often kind of ignore or have metrics skewed in a way that doesn't really reflect what neighborhoods and communities want. So I think that it's very important to have metrics and goals. I think it's very important to have those metrics and goals, you know, as part of an engagement, equitable engagement with communities. And recognizing some of those goals may not be completely quantitative some of it might be somewhat intangible (laughs) having you know the qualitative aspects is also very important so i think it's really about democratizing the metrics and also making them holistic and so that requires a lot of consultation um, and openness and discussions around the metrics, and then the data as well, and how people can co-create it and participate in the digital, or the data commons, it doesn't have to be digital, but
0: yeah. Right, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to ask, I mean, do you think there's a role for qualitative research methods to supplement this data, and also help in the creation of metrics going forward? Because even though qualitative research and qualitative information might not be looked at as tangible data as such, and it might be more difficult to standardize and produce some sort of uh, accessible uh, information that can be consumed by different stakeholders. I'm, I'm just trying to understand if you think, I mean, how, how you think the supplementing process might work when it comes to data, qualitative and quantitative.
1: Yeah, I think qualitative data is really important. I think we have a bias towards quantitative data. But especially in urban planning and in cities, there's so much that is so contextual that you need to understand. And so I think that it's really important when you're thinking about, let's say, land use redesign or, or, or infrastructure upgrading, that you interview a lot of people and, give people an opportunity to discuss how they might react to that infrastructure or land use changes, even though sometimes people can resist things and and then experience them and then realize, oh, maybe, maybe that is a good idea. So there's a role for kind of experiential planning, temporary treatment, what happens if we took some pylons or? pots of plants and just redesigned and, and then tell us, what do you think? What happens? So it's very empirical, but it's also very qualitative. It's, it's really democratic and based on, on dialogue because ultimately people need to live in those spaces and use those infrastructures. And over and over again, you get things that get designed without that kind of qualitative approach and also dialogue that ends up not being used. And that includes very big infrastructure projects. So, you know, some of my colleagues who have been on the investment side of, let's say, rail uh, metro in India, for example, have found that the ridership is very low. So they did all their quantitative analysis, uh, you know, and did these, you know, Nice looking metros, but they didn't connect to the way people travel in the city. And if they had talked to to the rickshaw people and if they had talked to uh, citizens more, you know and thought more about that context and, and worked more closely with those groups they would have come up with a design and also that might be more integrated and more functional for people in that city. So it has real consequences. So I I really like your question. Thank you for it.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much. And taking off from your point about bias and how data can be skewed, another issue that I'd love to hear from you about is that data is often thought to be the objective truth and something that can ensure that biases are eliminated. But since at the end, it is humans who are involved in the process of data gathering and subjective interpretation, this kind of glorification can unknowingly lead to political weaponization of data as well as misinformation, like the example that you just provided about the transit system in India. So how have you navigated the politics of data in your past work? I would just love to know more about that.
1: So again, excellent question what you learn when you start to work with people who are specialists in data my my techie colleagues is that there is no perfect data all data is flawed all data has problems with it and i think that that has to be the starting point which i get from my tech friends right it is there's no perfect data so one also then has to ask who's creating the data, who's controlling the data, what's missing from the data. And I think we want this basic data literacy and also to empower people to feel like, you know, if some technocrat says, "I have the data," you say, "Well, okay, so the data's, I'm sure, flawed, first of all, you know and, and how did you collect that data?" And it should be open. It should be open so that even if I can't understand it completely, I have my colleague who can, and so we can have a dialogue. So it's really about making people understand that data is a really important resource. It's too important to leave to the experts uh, who are in a, in a sector. And that's why we really need to come up with a you know way to democratize it, to demystify it, um, and to have people participate in it, and that's why we need to think about this this data commons idea. Um, it's, it, it belongs to it belongs to the the city and the residents, and 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 not just the experts, because it it can be completely weaponized if there isn't that check and balance and accountability. And I think that's where the open data movement is really powerful because it just opens that up for lots of discussion and even you know and that allows us to see the imperfections the gaps and also where people can contribute to to fill them and also maybe shift where somebody might want to take the data as a justification for a particular project that may not really be in the best interests of of many people which is what we keep seeing in a lot of the infrastructure investments in many cities.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. How open data allows conflicting views instead of creating the black box that can claim that something is uh, objective and completely true. I know we're nearing the end of our time, but as an urban planning student who is interested in working at the intersection of data, informality and urban systems, I have to ask you this before I let you go. What advice do you have for students and the upcoming generation of planners who are interested in this space? What are certain skills that they can focus on gaining as a student? And what are some things to keep in mind once they begin working as a practitioner?
1: We are in a exciting and complex moment in our technologies and what we're increasingly able to do with those technologies. So I think not being afraid of tech Uh, seeing what new tools are out there knowing that there's always a friendly techie or somebody who can try to explain and demystify I think is really important because the tools are some of them really fantastic and you know exciting and I think the best tech and tools are developed with planners and with citizens Um, and so don't be afraid to be part of that process of course, GIS is absolutely critical. We really need to think in spatial terms and be able to study spatial dynamics you know, as clearly as we can, but also don't get overly excited about the tech. Tech is only a tool. The data is only a tool. And as we mentioned, all things have their imperfections. And so, as a planning student embracing the complexity and the specificity of place through recognizing that a lot of planning is is critical co-production and dialogue with the people who will be living and experiencing uh, what you design and, and your interventions. And so I think that kind of radical democratic vision is something I encourage, and it should also empower you as a young planner to feel like you can build those collaborations. You can reach out and you know, really feel like you can make a difference through that kind of approach. Um, and it's the only way we're gonna solve a lot of complex problems is through that kind of highly collaborative democratic, data-driven dialogue, which includes qualitative work, so space, place-based work. <laughs> Sounds a little convoluted. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> of course. Thank
0: you so much, Jackie. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I'm grateful for the time and
1: insights that you've shared with us. It was completely my pleasure. Thank you.
0: You can find more information about Jackie's work at the Center for Sustainable Urban Development Earth Institute at Columbia University's website. And you can follow her on Twitter at jmklop one that is J-M-K-L-O-P-P-1. Thanks again to Jacqueline for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Harvard Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with our future podcasts.